0: Isaiah 50, which is now on page 611 of the Church Bibles. Isaiah 50 says this. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce, with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, you were... Behold, your iniquities you were sold. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water. And die I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, the moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, You shall lie down in torment. Do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at uh, those two chapters together. There's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, so do make use of that. And at the end, there will be time for any questions or comments. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your concern to not only vindicate you, but vindicate uh, the servants uh, of the Lord. And we pray, please, now as your people, that we would contribute to that in our phase of redemptive history by a response to your word. Would you help us to be those who listen, trust, and obey your word, and therefore vindicate you as the God who is truthful, good, and rightly sovereign over us? In Jesus' name, amen. In our reading this morning, one thing that might have caught your interest is the reference or references that are made to a very particular individual. He appears first in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1. Uh, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. And he appears again in uh, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear, to hear as those who are taught. Now you might have missed it because you thought the individual in question was Isaiah. Isaiah. But when you consider the ministry of this individual, such as in 49 verse 6, we'll see that he's one who will not only restore Israel, but 49 verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's not the ministry of Isaiah. Now, this individual is not new. We met him before in Isaiah 42. Which we considered a couple of weeks ago. And he will feature once more in our passage next week in Isaiah chapter 53. He's identified in three of the passages as the servant of the Lord. And the four texts where he's mentioned have been tradition, traditionally referred to as the servant songs. Not that they're really songs as we know them, but rather reflections on the ministry of this individual. <clears throat> now the New Testament clearly understands that this servant of the Lord, the one who with unswerving obedience pay the penalty for his people's sin in his sufferings, the one whom God will vindicate and raise so as to establish his rule over all the earth, and the one who will bring salvation to the nations is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you read the descriptions of him in these servant songs, it's all a bit enigmatic and obscure. But given that we now have the full revelation of God's plan <clears throat> of salvation in the New Testament, why bother spending time reflecting on the texts in the Old Testament that are less explicit? I mean, let me give you an example. It's been noted that as you go through the four servant songs, there's an increasing emphasis on the servant's sufferings. So in the first song, in Isaiah 42, 1 4, we learn that the servant of the Lord will avoid the limelight and will establish God's rule, not through military conquest, but through patient endurance. In the second servant song in Isaiah 49, verse 4, the servant expresses a sense of frustration over apparently fruitless labour. In the third servant song in Isaiah 50, verses 2 and 3, we learn that the servant's obedience to God leads directly to both physical and emotional suffering. And it's in the fourth servant song in Isaiah 53 that the nature and meaning of the servant's suffering is explained and related to his ministry. In other words, there is a progression of emphasis on the sufferings of the servant through the four songs, to the point where we will get in the final song a verse like Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. But here's the thing. Why bother with all that now we have the full revelation of the New Testament? For example, the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, We might become the righteousness of God. Bearing in mind that we have such clear affirmations about the ministry of the Christ in the New Testament, to what benefit is there in considering the less explicit, uh, even obscure, references to his suffering in the Old Testament? Why bother with Isaiah when you have the New Testament? What do we lose? Well, one thing that we lose is our understanding that God is the God who keeps his word. You see, if we just have the straightforward affirmation of the New Testament that for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, we've lost the fact that it was promised. We may understand why Jesus died but we've lost the fact that it comes as a fulfilment of God's promise. In contrast, if we have the servant songs in Isaiah then we have the anticipation that the servant will suffer and that for the sins of his people. So that Jesus comes in fulfilment of those anticipations, of those promises. But if we lose the servant songs, then we lose the idea of promise. And if we lose the idea of promise, then we lose the idea of God being faithful to his promise. Because for a promise to have value, you need to know that there is a yes a fulfilment. But for the yes to have value, or to have its full value, for the fulfilment to have its fullest meaning, you need to know that there was a promise given. That is to say, promise and fulfilment work together to reveal to us that God is faithful. God is the God who keeps his word. And if we start to lose sight of the promises of God, then we will start to lose sight of God's truthfulness. Well, how serious is it if we lose sight of God's truthfulness? At this point, I wonder if you noticed the surprise that is Isaiah 49 verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. I say surprise because this is envisaged as Israel's response to God's promise of restoring her fortunes. If you recall, at this point um, in Isaiah, or Isaiah is envisaging Um, Israel has been in captivity in Babylon Jerusalem lies in ruins God has promised to restore her in her fullness so that in verse 13 the Lord says sing for joy O heavens and exalt O earth break forth O mountains into singing for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted but she replies The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. She thinks that God has not kept his word to her. That's not her her only objection. If we look on to 49 verse 24, can the prey be taken from the mighty? or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Aware that her captives are the superpower of the day, this question anticipates Israel's objection that God is unable to keep his word to restore her fortunes. Babylon is too big a foe for God to rescue her from. That is to say that Israel is depicted very much a people who are questioning God's truthfulness and whether he will be faithful to the promises he has made. Israel thinks her plight is because God has not kept his word to her. Israel thinks that God is the God who does not keep his word. This, of course, helps us to understand what is being said in chapter 50, verse 1. Have a look. Chapter 50, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce, with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Here, God puts up a rhetorical question of his own um, to his people. Now, some people think that this verse offers hope to the people because they've never formally been divorced by God. That is, the anticipated answer to God's question is that they are unable to produce such a certificate because there isn't one. But the commentator suggests an alternative interpretation. Recall that the people are saying that it's God's fault that they're in captivity. They thought God had forgotten about them, And it is into this situation that God tells them to produce, as it were, the certificate of divorce. The idea being that if they produce it, it will tell them the reason that they're in the situation that they're in. Namely, it was because of their disobedience that God had handed them over to the Babylonians. It's their fault that they're in this predicament, not God's. The reason that Israel is in exile is not because God has been unfaithful to them, precisely because he has been faithful to them in judgment. Isaiah, after all, said that this would happen. Yet the people had a tendency to think it was all God's fault and that God is the God who does not keep his word. We shouldn't be surprised by this because doubting God's truthfulness ought to take us back to Genesis chapter 3. Recall that the serpent's temptation starts with the indication to Eve that if she eats from the fruit, she will not surely die. Who was it that said, you will surely die? God central to our race's original sin is the idea that we have declared that god is not truthful. No, denying god's truthfulness is actually that central to what happened to us as a species. And so the way that Israel likes to think about God in Isaiah 49 and 50 is simply characteristic of how humanity in general likes to think about him. And that even as God's redeemed community, we are still prone to doubt God's truthfulness. We began by asking the question, why bother with Isaiah when we have the New Testament? Seemed a fair question because the statements about the personal work of Jesus seem much more clear and comprehensive in the New Testament than, say, the descriptions of the servant of the Lord and his ministry in Isaiah 49 and 50. But what we've seen is that if we lose the likes of Isaiah, then we lose the idea idea that God is the God who keeps his word. And that's because promise... And fulfillment work together to reveal that God is truthful. Now, this loss is seen all the more serious when we consider that central to our race's original sin is the idea that we have declared that God is not truthful. And as soon as we start to see God's truthfulness is actually that central what happened to us, I take it that we ought to be enormously wary about something that will even remotely lead us in the direction where we might be inclined to downplay God's truthfulness. And if we downplay God's faithfulness to his promise, then God's truthfulness is less obviously in our face. And the irony, of course, is that if we limit our teaching to the New Testament, then the very thing that we're told that the New Testament teaches, namely God's redeeming work on the cross, begins to disappear from view. Let's pray, and then I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, as we consider that which was so central to um, uh, the the original sin of uh, humanity, the denial of your truthfulness, we thank you how you have revealed yourself uh, in this uh, promise, fulfilment um, way, and we thank you how, as we understand uh, the ministry of Jesus as the suffering servant, we do so as a fulfilment of promise, and that in itself teaches us that you are truthful, uh, that what you say is reliable. And bear in mind who we are. We thank you, therefore, how precious your revelation too is. And we thank you that uh, it concerns um, this ministry of your servant in whom uh, we can have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. I pray, therefore, that we would be strengthened uh, and confident that you are truthful and what you say happens. In Jesus' name, amen okay time for any questions or comments if you have any Susie Thank you, Susie. So just for the recording, 49.24 says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? So I think um, what's going on here is that this seems to be um, Israel's um, line of thinking. So... Earlier we see back in verse 14, Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. So that's, we're learning about Israel's perspective and how how are they understanding what's happening to them and how they think about God. So on the one hand, in verse 14, they're thinking that they've been forgotten by God, God's been unfaithful to them. But in verse 24, I think this is picking up the idea that because they are captive in Babylon um, that the the mighty and the tyrant are kind of in this instance Babylon the oppressors, and they are they consider themselves as prey as captives, and so the thinking is is that they're asking the question you know Israel if you like are saying. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captors of a tyrant be rescued? No. In other words, um, they see Babylon as a superpower and very much in control of their of their destiny. Which and I think is significant for us because, again, it's quite telling how they're thinking about God, and it, and certainly. Um, It's much more um, of a piece with Adam and Eve who believe that surely they will not die rather than expressing any confidence that if God says that he will deliver them, then he will. Um, Because then then the Lord goes on to speak in verse 25 that actually, um, yeah, it's no... Uh He's perfectly able to deal with their oppressors, but the kind of the point is Israel's in quite a different situation to where God would have them be in terms of sharing his perspective on what's going on. It's okay, great, Anybody else. <laughs> yeah, um, this one it was interesting reading this. Is, this, is, this is, uh, and this uh, and it's, um, it's all about the um, and Jesus talks about a strong man and the strong woman. And mm-hmm. um, but even though there's a similar, basically how much to make it feels like Jesus could be making an allusion this, but. Okay, interesting. So the idea that in twenty four twenty six you've got the strong man. To this is Nathan's words. Uh, the strong man is is in Babylon, who are the captors or the oppressors, but then God identifies himself as the stronger man, and does that does that foreshadow what Jesus says? I'm just gonna check my notes. I don't think there's anything in the commentator about that, but you might want to say something so quick look. Uh, yeah, so uh yeah, I don't know. Um guess something to think about. Um, I mean interestingly. The uh, yeah to think about um I, I can think of else, See, uh, I mean, I suppose it's interesting that the well, I always find it a funny one because in many ways the the strength of the Lord is established in Genesis one. In terms of he is the uncreated creator he has no rival um, so it is a funny one that in terms of the people don't um, have not internalized that that's not how they're thinking about God but it's because he is the uncreated creator and you've got this creator creature distinction that um, that's you're always going back to creation that's where that's that's why that's so foundational. So it's interesting, I suppose when Jesus is driving out demons, I guess he is wanting people to see that he is stronger than the demons, but I suppose more than that, there's particular significance in terms of driving out the demons, because that identifies him as the one who has come to defeat the serpent which again is another nice thing about promise fulfilment so the promise back in Genesis 3.15 of the serpent crusher is then fulfilled in Jesus and then that further identifies God's truthfulness so that actually just as he said an offspring of Eve would crush the serpent's head so he has and again I don't know how you think about yourself but if it, if it is true that we are prone to doubting God's truthfulness. It'd be interesting to think about how we express that. One idea, actually, was—I'm uh, going to ramble just—and then I'll stop. The, um, you know, the whole when we looked at in the crypto I guess some of us have thought about this um, more generally. You know, when people say that's not oh, there's different interpretations to the Bible. Um, so when a church, particularly you know, if it's trying to work out matters of um, uh, well, okay, a current debate in the Church of England will be how they think about same-sex um, blessing and marriages. And one of the things is is that they're saying, well, actually, there's different interpretations. Therefore, how do you know any one interpretation is true? But it's funny, because at the same time, you know, the, the Church might affirm that the Bible is truthful. The, the, the word is inerrant, but you kind of feel like, well, what does that actually mean? Because when you start to go down the route to saying, actually, there's, um, there's different interpretations, therefore we can't be sure, so we suspend judgment. I mean, you're basically taking a step back. Why even bother read the word? Why even bother reading the Bible? Because it's no longer informing how you think about these things. So I think that might be an example of, I know it's got to do with your question. But actually, how do we? How, does, how might the church be tempted to express that proneness to deny God's truth? Whereas, actually, what we've been seeing today, and your comment about serpent crusher, is that that is identifying God's words as truthful. And that is why it's so valuable to us, because man's word is not truthful, because it's prone to idolatry, whereas God's word is truthful. And so we're expecting it to be true. And understanding it, that sort of thing. I fancy. Yeah, cool. Um, time for more, Nikki. Oh, Mackie. Okay, oh, on Nikki. Uh, if you do Nikki, then we'll stop, and then Mackie, we can we can chat at You know. Yeah, Nikki. Hang on, forty-nine. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is um, 49, 19 to 21 particularly verse in fact let me just read it and the question is what's particularly verse here with the child the children of the bereavements? yep yeah. so it says <coughs> excuse me surely uh, your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, The place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone, from where have these come? So... I think um, it's worth bearing in mind this is slightly poetic in terms of um, how the language has been used. And I take it that um, the situation is it looks like Zion has lost everything because they are in exile in Babylon. Okay, so they're, they're captives, Babylon's their oppressor. But actually... This is saying that, uh, despite the odds, um, and in many ways, it is. I guess it is a bereavement because they have they've lost people. They're it's, it's mourning because they're no longer in the land as the people Israel. So, despite this, this comes as a promise that there will be a new generation, um, and that actually she won't come to an end. That it's not like a final bereavement. That her life will continue. So I think it's that kind of poetic way of expressing um, <clears throat> those ideas. Is that okay for now? Great. Okay, we'll leave it there.